0: Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, senior editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel podcast. In 2019, the American Library Association added sustainability as one of the core values of librarianship. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a recognition of and commitment to the important and unique role that libraries play in promoting community awareness about resilience, climate change, and a sustainable future. Libraries across the U.S. are leading by example by taking steps to reduce their environmental footprint. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we talk with librarians who are helping to advance this core value by implementing sustainable practices in both their libraries and their lives. First, American Libraries Associate Editor, Sally Ann Price, speaks with Gabrielle Griffiths, Assistant Youth Services Librarian at Brewster Ladies Academy in Brewster, Massachusetts, about the Blue Marble Librarians, a group that helped propel Climate Prep Week across the state last year. Next, ALA Editions Acquisitions Editor Jamie Santoro speaks with Susan Norton and Renee Tanner from Arizona State University about sustainability programs they helped implement at the university. Finally, American Library's Editorial and Advertising Associate Carrie Smith speaks with three librarians who biked from New York City to Philadelphia last winter to raise awareness of sustainability. But first, a word from a sponsor. Buildings and their mechanical systems have an outsized role in the greater sustainability plan for a library. Whether it's a renovation or new construction, establishing sustainability goals early in a building project allows for greater energy and cost savings later. Tappe's approach is to listen and respond to each community's needs and strength to formulate a library design that works in their specific context. To learn more, visit tape.com slash Dewey. Gabrielle Griffiths is Assistant Youth Services Librarian at Brewster Ladies Academy in Brewster, Massachusetts. She's also a Blue Marble Librarian, one of a group of librarians promoting climate change and sustainability across the state. American Libraries Associate Editor Sally and Price spoke with Griffiths about the Blue Marble Librarians, their work, and more.
1: In your last job at Wellfleet Public Library, I understand you were involved with uh, an event called Climate Preparedness Week. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, so Climate Prep Week is a project that was founded by communities responding to extreme weather, and the acronym for that is CREW. And they're based out of Boston, and they are a project um, of the better i think it's the better future project so that's they're like a branch of that organization and so crew had partnered with the massachusetts library system and this was through a sequence of events in which um michelle eberly who works for the massachusetts library system um you know started having conversations um, at different events with um Madeline Charney, who is a reference librarian for the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is also one of the founders of the American Library Association's um, Sustainability Roundtable. So they really, um, in addition to uh, Chris Glass, who also worked a lot with CREW, and he's a librarian in Boston, um, they formed this partnership and the working group that um, I got involved with was all about how can libraries play an integral role in helping their communities better prepare for extreme weather events and crisis. So um, so basically Climate Prep Week takes place every year between September 24th and September 30th. And um, crew, they, their website their work their organization um, focuses on getting institutions so not even just libraries but hospitals community centers all sorts of you know different um you know social infrastructure to do events focused around better preparing people and getting people together to talk about um you know what to do in terms of Extreme weather events, climate change, um, crisis. Uh, So, you know, the the role that we were playing and the role that I was playing um, as part of this working group was um, getting libraries to sign up to host a a climate prep week event. And these events took many different shapes, many different forms. Um, Everything from, you know, what are called world cafes. So community conversations, that getting people together at tables, talking face to face with questions about, you know, crisis and extreme weather events and what to do during times, um, films, lectures, discussions, and um, you know, one of the other roles that I played was um, helping helping to do the publicity. So reaching out to all of the libraries. Um, in the the CLAMS library network, so that's Cape Cod where I live, and, you know, helping and assisting with, you know, getting the word out and also providing resources for people of like what kind of events um, could be done. So that's a a little bit of um, the backstory in terms of how I got involved in Climate prep week.
1: And can you tell me about the Blue Marble librarians and how, uh, what is this group and how was it involved in Climate Prep Week?
2: Yes, absolutely. So as I had mentioned before, um, Michelle Eberly, Madeline Charney, Chris Glass, there were a number of librarians that um, formed this partnership with Crew. and Michelle and Madeline and Chris, they invited um, a number of other librarians to work around, as I had said before, um, you know, the publicity, you know, explaining to libraries, what is Climate Prep Week? So um, some of the other librarians like Aola White um, and Heather Diaz and just a number, uh, CJ Wong, they, um, we all sort of formed this emerging collaboration under the leadership of, of Madeline and Michelle um, to put out publicity, provide resources to libraries across Massachusetts to host their own Climate Prep Week events. And what is really um, great to hear is that um, the first year that we did this, um, they had so crew their first year of doing Climate Prep Week, they had 32 events, and by Partnering with the Massachusetts Library System, they ended up having over 150 events, so it was um, very successful. But basically, the Blue Mar- Marble librarians is a is a wonderful pet name that Madeline um, gave to the group. It's based off of the um, the 19 uh, was it 1970? I'm not going to get the the exact year right, but the picture of Earth <laughs> that was taken and calling it the Blue Marble. And so she, she coined the name the Blue Marble Librarians, but really, you know, we are an emerging collaboration of librarians that work together around initiatives like Climate Prep Week, but also other initiatives around um, helping librarians really rethink what does it mean to um, help our communities become regenerative, um, to become sustainable, to, to really prioritize living in a zero waste society. Um, so, so that's a, a, a little bit about the Blue Marble librarians, which are, you know, based all around Massachusetts and, um, and some collaborators are also outside of Massachusetts as well.
1: And what kind of programs did you see coming together for Climate Prep Week of the, you know, over 150? You mentioned World Cafes. Uh, what were some themes or factors that made events successful?
2: So I would say that the themes and the factors that made events the most successful was the, the networking aspect and the aspect of people, um, and I don't even know if networking is the best word, but really people getting together face-to-face to talk about real, <laughs> really serious issues and to, you know, be on the same page with one another. And I can provide just some anecdotes from, you know, my own experience hosting Climate Prep Week events. And I did host a World Cafe. And it was really interesting because one of the conversations that we ended up having having was um, a lot of people thought that our library was a shelter. And so, we, we had a conversation about what does the shelter system actually look like on Cape Cod. So, First of all there you know and there were people that were you know really integral members of you know the library community including people on our staff including people um and our friends of the library who thought that the library was a shelter and it's not because in order to be a shelter you have to have a generator and the library where you know wealthy library doesn't have a generator it's something that's you know been in conversation but it's a very it's a very big conversation to have so it does serve as like a warming and cooling station sometimes in when there's extreme weather like when we had a heat wave last summer um, and when we had some power outages it's people have been able to go and to warm themselves but it's not a shelter this is an example of the sort of conversation that you know was is ongoing and that we were having and i would say again that the events that were really successful were ones that you know got people together talking about you know what do things actually look like and how can they play a role um in helping to strengthen our social infrastructure in times Of crisis.
1: And uh, are there plans in place for Climate Preparedness Week this September? And have those plans shifted at all in light of COVID?
2: Yes. Yes, they have. Um, And there are plans um, for Climate Prep Week this year. So um, basically, this year, we have gone virtual. Um, We are still inviting libraries to host their own programs. And if, you know, they do have the, you know, the ability to do socially distanced programs, like that's also um, an option, but we have a number of centralized events that are planned and are seen this year is um, social resilience is climate resilience, climate resilience is social resilience. So they're really one and the same going back to what we were talking about before in the intersectionality of um, climate, climate justice and social justice. So this, sep- this September, we'll be focusing um, on several, several central events around intersections of climate resilience, social- racial justice, and social
3: resilience.
0: Your library needs to serve your community by providing spaces uniquely designed for them. There is not a one-size-fit-all solution for sustainable buildings. Careful planning must be done to create a right-size program for you. Energy-efficient buildings aren't just limited to large libraries. Our lead Gold Design for West Hampton, Massachusetts, serves a town of just 6,000 people. To learn more, visit tape.com Dewey. Tape Architects, enhancing communities through library design. Across the U.S. from Massachusetts and Tempe, Arizona, a librarian and a program manager at Arizona State University, Combine forces to bring sustainability programs to the university, even during the pandemic. Jamie Santoro, ALA Editions Acquisitions Editor, spoke with Renee Tanner, Associate Liaison Librarian for the Humanities Division at Arizona State and the co-editor of the upcoming Sustainable Libraries book from ALA Editions, and Susan Norton, Program Manager for Arizona State's University Sustainability Practices, about their work, tips for libraries interested in organizing sustainability programs, and more.
4: Renee and Susan, welcome to the Dewey Decibel podcast. I'm I'm really eager to hear about the sustainability programs that the two of you co-developed. But um, before we get there, can you tell us how the two of you became collaborators? Renee, did you want to take this one?
5: Yes, I sure would. Well, it's been a while, but Susan actually is the one that reached out to me. So she learned that I had a seed library at Arizona State University. And so she got in touch with me via email and said, hey, can I come over and introduce myself? And I'd like you to be part of this program called Eat Well, Live Well, which was actually uh, by Aramark, Sun Devil Dining. And it was an event where they had local honey and local music, local foods, local produce, and local seeds. So it was a really nice event to be part of and to highlight the library and the work that we were doing to support sustainability. And Susan, uh, the two of you
4: went on from there to plan some Earth Month programs this year at ASU. Um,
3: Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Uh, Sure. Uh, Renee and I um, kind of got together and started to brainstorm some ideas, and a natural fit seemed to be um, a book discussion. So we were uh, looking at uh, various environmentally themed books and decided on the book, The Overstory. So that was um, our original plan. And we were um, developing kind of content for the event and maybe a kind of a question and answer um, kind of session. And then, um, you know, once March came and the pandemic hit, we realized that we were going to need to pivot on that idea and do something different so that's when we decided to um turn our the book discussion event into um in lieu of the book that we were going to choose a podcast and then do a virtual event where we were discussing the podcast um it just happened to be that sierra club has a podcast called the overstory as well and so we chose that, and then we chose an episode that was actually on urban birding. Uh, so that was, um, yeah, it ended up being actually a really great event, and um, it it really was a pretty easy transition again to go from you know in-person discussion to uh, virtual discussion.
5: Yeah, I was really um, excited about our selection of that podcast and and the overstory book. Um, that book is actually a Pulitzer Prize winning book and it tells the story of trees and their role in people's lives. And it's a it's a wonderful book. And and maybe someday we actually will do, you know, a book discussion around that. But I really like the way that we were able to pivot to a podcast. It was something that, you know, people could manage and they could stay focused on. And I, I really like the one that we selected, too, with Jason Ward as the birder and he's really focused on getting people to appreciate birds wherever they are. So you can be in a city and there are birds there and that's kind of amazing. You know, there are these, these dinosaurs that are with us now and they're in all these environments. So um, I found that really uh, inspiring. Also Jason brought up in that podcast, something that we are dealing with and being coming aware of and, And responding to right now which is racism and he touches on it in the podcast and talks about how because he's a black birder he's been followed and uh, observed and asked questions by police and and, you know he just he just brings it up as like that's part of his reality so I thought that was really important for us to know and to remember and to be um, cognizant of that not everybody has the same uh, safety when they are, you know, birding, doing something as natural and um, fun and exciting as birding.
4: And what sort of response did you receive from students
3: and staff for that program? Um, We had a good response. Uh, I think we had a, I believe we had in the range of 40 signups uh, for that event. And uh, yeah, people, yeah, people seemed to enjoy it. It was sort of, a, you know, you know, it was in April. And so people were still a little bit um, new to, you know, being in quarantine and even new to some of our virtual means for having these events Um So, you know, I'm not we I I think um, we might have maybe gotten more participants if it had been a little bit later in the season. But I think, um, again, having 40 people log on and have an open discussion, uh, you know, regarding this topic was 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 really good.
5: I think that kind of a jumping off point for us when we um, thought of the mindfulness connections to nature is, is really that podcast about overstory because in that podcast about the overstory, the gentleman who's speaking is talking about birding and he's talking about how you kind of get into this place in your mind when you're looking at the birds and you're focused on birds and you're listening to their song. And and so that made us think about, um, you know, that connection that we feel, when we were in nature and we felt kind of separated. I think we felt like separated from so much. We were separated from one another and our routines and our, all of the things that made us feel like, you know, safe in the world that had been, been taken away, but we still had nature. And I think that's what we kind of realized is that, you know, we were, we were spending time in our garden and we were like noticing things. So, um, I think that was the springboard for, um, Susan's idea of having this this mindfulness connections to nature.
4: Great, and Susan, can you talk a little bit about that program?
3: Um, sure. So, there were three of three of us that were really kind of heading it up, which was Renee, myself, and then another colleague, Hannah, who actually works for the Mindfulness Center at ASU. Uh, she is a grad student, and I had worked with her before uh, on a few other things and so I reached out to her and asked if she would be willing to uh, be part of the event and actually um, help st- kind of open the event with a mindfulness practice and kind of get us in that kind of comfortable uh state and then um also close the event with a mindfulness practice as well.
4: Can you speak a little more about um, what the program entailed?
3: Right. you Opened with a mindfulness practice, that was, um, right, I think the five-step process of going through all of your senses, you know, think about, you know, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you taste? Um, So that was the initial practice. And then the actual um part of the program, uh Re- Renee and I just welcomed everybody. We thanked everybody for um being part of this event. And we had a short list of questions that asked people about their nature space. And so we asked everybody who anybody that wanted to chime in to tell us um, tell us about their nature space and why it's so important to them. Another question that we asked is just tell us about your favorite outdoor place or adventure. So a few people chimed in and talked about maybe places they had visited uh, before or state parks. And one woman was like, did actually like a, a descriptive, it was almost like poetry. And so instead of talking to us and just describing it to us like in sentences, she was just very... Descriptive, in the end, we had to guess where that space was, where that national park was. So, again, it was just um, asking people to tell us uh, about their space and why it's so important. And the last question was, how is it helping you today during the pandemic? uh, What is a special place? You know, how is it helping you cope?
4: What what sort of advice might you have for other libraries who are interested in promoting sustainability um, in particular like around the collaboration that you you two have built and also around the programs that you guys have offered.
5: Yeah, I would say no matter if you're at an academic library or a community library, a rural library, you know, whatever type of library you are in, that sustainability is something that really uh, people know is important, they want to be involved in. It's important to our communities, whether it be on campuses uh, or whatever environment. So you're going to find collaborators. You're going to be people out there who are ready and willing to work with you. And just kind of, you know, start by looking through your directory. Uh, Start by, if you go to a board meeting, is there anybody working on uh, sustainability? There's so many ways to get involved in this. You can start with a reading group. You could start, you know, do you have a seed library? Is there somebody, can you promote a seed library? So there's lots of ways uh, for libraries and librarians to be involved in sustainability. And it's something that I know um, is going to continue to grow in importance. In, and we're going to see a lot of change in this area. We're going to see a lot of change in this area as as we go forward, as we figure out, you know, some of the things that we didn't think were possible, refining are possible. So this pandemic is also showing us that Oh, we can actually function and drive less. Like the air in many parts is cleaner than it was before. So, I think as as people who are really um, committed to sharing information, that you know we're gonna we're part of this. We're part of this process. We're part of this solution. And so, I, I really encourage everyone to find someone to partner with on this pro on, in these programs because it makes it a lot more fun. I have to tell you that it's just a lot of fun. I really enjoy working with Susan, I really enjoy working with my colleagues on these projects and uh, and I know that they appreciate it as well.
3: Yeah, and I would completely agree with what Renee says and I, and I would say, you know, um on, that the librarians can always look for a sustainability office if if any of the your college or your university has such an office and or a person who um, works for sustainability within the campus. Reach out to them because um, I will say when I kind of first came on board, I didn't really think of the library as my natural fit for collaboration. I don't know why that seems kind of silly now. I can't, but I was actually at a conference, a sustainability conference, and there were librarians were at the conference, and I just remember we were. I don't remember the topic, but I just remember a librarian, she raised her hand and she said, well, don't forget about us. We're the resource people. We're the information people and we're here to help. And that was really so powerful to, for me to be sitting there in the audience with a thousand other people at the conference and one librarian is raising her hand, speaking for all librarians saying, we're here to help. We have information. We'd like to help.
5: I agree with all of that. I just think it's so important to to build those relationships and collaborations and that we all have a role in this and that as librarians we have a really strong role in helping our communities as we experience changes as we need to get informed and 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 librarians are trusted so um, know that as you move around in your communities
0: tap a architects unparalleled achievements in sustainable library design The Athol Public Library in Athol, Massachusetts, is the first and only historic Carnegie Library renovation to achieve LEED Platinum status. This achievement was made possible by a community fully dedicated to sustainability and a design team with the know-how to meet challenging project obstacles. By focusing on local materials and adaptive reuse of existing resources, sustainability ceased to be an environmental requirement and instead became a source of pride for all. Visit tapay.com dewey to explore how your library can create their own sustainable story. Last January, three employees of Queens Public Library in New York, Casper Drecchi, Library Manager, Desmond Bonhomme, Youth and Family Counselor, and Sarah Gluck, Assistant Community Library Manager, all rode their bicycles from New York City to Philadelphia for the ALA Midwinter Meeting, visiting libraries along the way to raise awareness about sustainability. American Libraries editorial and advertising associate Carrie Smith, herself an avid cyclist, spoke with the three about their trip and more.
6: Um, I know that. Uh, Both Casper and Sarah, you are members of ALA's Sustainability Roundtable. Um, So, could you let us know just sort of how the idea to ride bikes from New York to Philadelphia came about?
7: Okay. So, you know, we're both supervisors, myself and Sarah. So, we met at a manager's meeting at East Palmhurst Library, and we discovered that we're both members of the Sustainability Roundtable. So, we were just joking around, like, let's ride our bicycles to Philadelphia for the conference. And usually when I joke around, people tell me I have stupid ideas or that's dumb, but Sarah was really different because she said that's a great idea. So I was really appreciative that she really picked up on it and without her support, this would have never have happened. Um, Thank you.
8: Yeah, And usually people think, so I've done some long distance bike rides before. So I was like, yeah, that's totally doable, 120 miles, no big deal. And usually people would say, I'm crazy. So I really appreciate Casper for (laughs) jumping and thinking of it. And um, it just seemed like a really fun idea to do together um, or whoever else wanted to join. Uh, Just to have the enthusiasm um, behind it was was really fun. And I appreciate of Casper for doing that and for Desmond for
9: jumping along as well. Yeah,
7: Yeah, Desmond, how did you do it? I
9: forgot. I was asked by you. And (laughs) at the time, when you suggested it to me, I thought that would be a wonderful way to start 2020, to just start this year without any fear and no sense of looking back.
6: And I know uh, (laughs) when you planned this ride, you planned some stops and uh, kind of planned the route around libraries. Um, How did that figure into um, your plan for this ride?
8: Um, That was pretty interesting, actually. So we um, rode – there's something called the East Coast Greenway, um, and that is a – it's a bicycle path that's on roads and paths, um, and the goal is for it to be from Maine down to – to Florida, um, but it's pretty well developed in in Jersey um, and Pennsylvania and New York. But because we were going to libraries, we wanted to stop along the way at different libraries to talk to people and raise awareness of the sustainability um, initiative. Uh, we were actually taken off the Greenway and onto some pretty dangerous roads. So it kind of also opens your eyes to like where lo- libraries are actually located in communities. Um, often we think of them as like pleasant back like small town back road stops, but some of them were on some like there was one that we went to that was on a pretty busy um i guess you could call it a highway um so that was interesting and casper also reached out to a lot of libraries he was amazing in um, doing our outreach and i think that um not everyone did most of them get back to you casper
7: yeah, a lot of them did get back to me. It was really nice uh, because there's a sense of solidarity because we're all working for libraries. So we all kind of help and support each other. So it was really nice that the Sustainability Roundtable supported us to begin with. That was really amazing that they sponsored us. They gave us $75 for our vest, which we wore. And I think they were really helpful to save us from dying. So I appreciate that. And all the libraries that were were really nice when we contacted them, they said, "Come on over," and we had some really good experiences visiting the libraries on the way
9: and I believe when we when we all met up uh to begin to commence the actual trip, we had different um multimodal ways, means of transportation, each of us kind of came to the starting location a different way. I took the Long Island Railroad. I I live in Queens, so I rode from my house to the Long Island Railroad, took the Long Island Railroad to Penn Station, and then from Penn Station rode down to the Battery Park Library. That was our meeting location. So that was the first library that we were able to tour.
4: I don't
8: think they knew we were coming. I think they were just very kind and... um, Took us on a tour and talked to us, and we left some sustainability initiative flyers and talked to them about um, what they were doing sustainability wise.
6: Um, so as you guys did this ride, I know you mentioned handing out some uh sustainability roundtable pamphlets and things to libraries. Um were you able to talk to any of these libraries about their sustainability initiatives? Um was there anything that any of them were doing that was uh particularly interesting? Um
8: I remember in Woodbridge they were they uh Cass I don't remember her name, but she was talking about how they have um live planters in their garbage cans um and some gardens. That was really amazing. Um Casper, do you remember any other ones?
7: Well,
6: they had bicycle
7: apps so we could tie up our bicycles. hmm And you know, libraries are sustainable in the in of themselves. They you know, people borrow books and materials so and even without any extra initiatives all the libraries we were visited we knew that they were helping the environment by helping people share and bringing them together
9: i remember well i'm not sure if it is directly related to sustainability but we were well received at uh bucks in bucks county the free public library yeah the lebertown leathertown library Le- lebertown yeah, and so uh we said I think out of all the libraries that we visited, that was the most impactful, because when we arrived, we were very, very fatigued, and just to be so well-received um, as staff and as library professionals, um, I believe his name is Steve? Yes, yeah, Steve. Steve from uh, Levittown, gave us a, a great tour. He had water. He had very healthy, nutritious um, snacks for us to refuel and rehydrate. Um, the library was, it wasn't packed, but it was, it was, it was functioning. I believe we, uh, we had a, a discussion about the futures of libraries, all of us in the staff room we had some tea we had chocolates and nuts so it was very i don't have the word for it but i felt i felt comfortable and i felt like like a guest of honor in the levittown library
6: Um, I did want to ask, though, when you got to midwinter, what was it like? Was it a relief? I know you guys um, got to speak to the Sustainability Roundtable about the ride as well. What was your reception at midwinter like?
8: Um, So it was like, so we ended up riding into the night again on our second day, and we missed um, our meeting at at the Philadelphia Free Library, unfortunately. Um, But riding into Philadelphia was pretty dangerous. Um, we were on a bike path along a highway, which was, it felt fine. You're on a bike path. And then all of a sudden the bike path ended and trucks are whizzing by you. And there was no signage that the bike path was going to end. Um, and so we managed to escape that situation. And then we were riding down through a pretty dangerous neighborhood, um, that was supposed to have a bike path, but the lines weren't well kept. And when we
9: got off the the bike path, we were... Riding under a elevated train, yeah, and I think that's east philly or east south philly, and we're riding through a neighborhood that um is very very old that that's 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 a feeling i got a lot of the businesses a lot of the shops they're not- re- they weren't really functioning and and even the the architecture was 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 very old And when we got through that neighborhood, we made it to Chinatown. And so then after Chinatown, that's when we hit downtown. And that was my first time in Philly. So I was taking it all in, my my sensory process. I was really captivated by um, the sights and the sounds. And there was a lot of traffic on that, that underpass, that elevated train above us.
8: Yeah, so it was it was definitely a huge relief when we got to our hotel that night and just, um, because it was a very stressful ride into the city and um, it just, I think that the cycling too raised your awareness about neighborhoods and how much care we're putting into certain neighborhoods um, and if we're going to be developing this infrastructure then we should be supporting it um, because people are actually using it. Um, but then we went to ALA midwinter the next day and people had heard about our ride which i was honestly surprised about um so we really it was like everybody was congratulating us which felt really good um
9: yeah we, we were pretty vip because everybody they were like how'd you get here and we were like we rode i mean no you didn't ride yes we rode look at our vest
6: and would you do this ride again
7: Yes, and we are doing it again.
8: Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to ride, we're going to take the train up to um, Poughkeepsie, New York, and ride from Poughkeepsie, New York, to Saratoga Springs, New York, for New York Library Association Conference. And anybody so that wants to join us on any leg of the ride is more than welcome.
6: And will you be publishing the route ahead of time so people will know where to meet up with you? And if so, where can people find that information?
8: Yes, we will be publishing the route ahead of time. They should keep an eye out on the sustainability initiatives on um, Facebook page and um, Instagram, will be,
1: we'll be promoting it as soon as it's up for sure.
7: Yeah, the, the NILA conference is not confirmed that to take place yet in November on location, but we're November. crossing our fingers that they'll decide to go ahead with it. Mm-hmm.
8: We could do the ride anyway and document uh-huh. it, um, as long as we keep our social distance, depending on what the situation is. really hard right now with the situation of the pandemic. Um but we could, we'd like to do something um, to raise awareness of sustainability in a way that um, people can join in and it's fun and people get to push themselves a little bit too.
0: That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Thanks to our many guests for speaking with us today about sustainability. Join us next month as we look at new trends in library architecture and design. In the meantime, drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or to me directly at deweydecibel at ALA.org. Show ideas, praise, complaints, anything at all. We want to hear from you. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast.